This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And it seems that 2018 was not a good year for perceptions of corruption around the world, including in Australia. The latest Corruption Perceptions Index is out. It's prepared every year by Transparency International, which has been producing this research since 1995. And CEO of Transparency International Australia, Serena Lillywhite, is in to talk about it. And thanks for coming in. Thank you. Great to be here. And uh, so Australia, I think, you know, people will be interested in how we rank. Uh, We're number 13 in the world, which sounds good. We've been in that position since 2015, but it actually has caused a lot of people to be concerned. Why is that? Yeah, well, I think, um, as you say, 13th uh, doesn't sound too bad, although lucky on number 13, I guess. Um, But really the worrying trend is the fact that... um, Whilst we're on the same score as we were last year, a score of 77, what we're seeing is that, in fact, Australia has slipped eight points um, over the the last uh, seven years. So since 2012, we've just continued to go, you know, down every year. And that's the really worrying trend, um, is that uh, nothing has been done to arrest that slide. And whilst on a score of 77, same as last year, I guess at best you can say we're stagnant um, but more worrying nothing's been done to put in place the sort of reform we need and I think it's really significant that this is the corruption perceptions index so not measuring corruption per se but the perception of that is is that measured by uh, kind of citizens of Australia or people around the world institutions who are you kind of speaking to to gather these results yeah so the corruption perception index is the best known biggest um, index that's conducted uh, globally And what it does is it measures the perception of corruption just in the public sector, so among government officials in 180 countries and territories around the world. And we use a scoring system whereby 100 is um, ideally most clean and least corrupt and a score of zero means you're, you know, the dirtiest and the least clean. And uh, this um, index is put together by using up to um, 12 different uh, indices or research that is conducted by other independent organisations. So Transparency International doesn't conduct the research itself. There are, as I said, 13 or, well, 12 different independent institutions, people like the World Economic Forum, um, the Economist Intelligence Unit, they conduct the surveys themselves and then we collate all the data uh, along with some additional independent verification to come up with these scores. And a a lot of countries aren't faring well, like countries that you would think would would do okay. I mean, the United States is one to point out that has slipped this year. And what what is it that is feeding into, I suppose, disappointing results for democracies around the world? I mean, I think that I mean the CPA is really it's a good it's a, it's a good indicator of the health of our democracy, and certainly Australia's health health card's not looking too good. But I, one of the major messages from this year's research is that 
the um, failure to really tackle corruption around the world is really resulting in a crisis of democracy around the world. And one of the things that is really contributing to that is this vicious cycle, if you like, whereby corruption chips away at democracy, uh, which in turn sort of undermines democratic institutions. And then when you have weak institutions, they are then not able to um, tackle and combat corruption. So it's it's an undermining of a, of a robust system of checks and balances. Mm, and I imagine the concerns around corruption in countries such as North Korea, Philippines, would be quite different from some of the concerns around corruption in Australia. What has fed into kind of our slipping in the rankings over the past few years? What are people or uh, people who have been um, surveyed as part of this study concerned about in Australia? Well, around the world, the things that we do measure um, with the Corruption Perception Index include things like the use of public office for private gain, uh, levels of bribery, whether or not our institutions are strong enough to actually land some prosecutions for bribery. And I think what we've seen in Australia is real concern about um, the way that our public officers, our elected officials um, conduct themselves. We've had only two major prosecutions for full-on foreign bribery of, of, uh, of foreign officials uh, and I think by and large the community in Australia is, is pretty well fed up with the conduct uh, of our elected officials um, and the sorts of scandals where we see of, of um, politicians using their office for for private gain or indeed to, to benefit their families. Serena Lilywhite's with us. She's CEO of Transparency International Australia and we're talking about the latest Corruption Perceptions Index and we've heard uh, independence in particular recently in the federal government calling for a, a really strong integrity commission at the federal level we've got some models out there that are being looked at is that a good way to go you think to to get that sort of what a federal ICAC or whatever it might be dubbed yeah. as? Yeah well Transparency International Australia has been calling for the introduction of a federal ICAC let's call it that since about 2004 and you know uh, all governments have just really dragged the heels. That's a this. lot of governments that's a lot of prime ministers since <laughs> right. 2004. That's right we've had a, a lot of turnover and to some extent that that hasn't helped us because of this instability uh, within government um, but at the end of last year in the sort of dying days of, uh, of Parliament last year we, we saw some real momentum and uh, the, the crossbenchers, I guess, realised they had uh, some muscle in their arm and started to flex that muscle. And uh, led by Cathy McGowan, they introduced a package of two bills called the National Integrity Commission Bills. Um, and it also included a, a bill specifically around parliamentary standards, really aimed at um, ideally uh, having a code of conduct in place so that parliamentarians can be held more accountable. And of course, um, introducing a federal anti-corruption agency, which needs to have, you know, broad-based powers, needs to be independent, and ideally has the scope of a royal commission. In response to that, uh, the current government, um, the Attorney-General introduced not a, not a set of bills but a, 
their proposed model of what um, a, a federal anti-corruption agency might look like. And uh, they called that the Commonwealth Integrity Commission. Uh, and in our view, it's just not good enough. Uh, it's not fit for purpose and it is not going to uh, deliver the level of coordination and, and um, a sort of comprehensive approach that the Crossbenchers Bill does. And one thing, it, it, the, the proposed model by the Attorney-General, for example, you know, it does not allow for any rigorous uh, investigation of um, senior parliamentarians and their staff. Now, that's, that's a real weakness. And my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the model that's been proposed by the current government is that hearings for um, MPs, people in in government at the time, in Parliament, would be held behind closed doors, so not in the public realm. Is that is that the case? That's correct, and it's one of the uh, fundamental flaws with the model proposed by the current government. They've made it very clear that they have uh, no interest in uh, public hearings uh, being conducted. And public hearings are really essential, not in every case, uh, we're not suggesting that every single matter, you know, requires a public hearing, but in certain circumstances, when it's in the national interest or when uh, information and evidence is being slow in coming forward or when it looks like uh, a prosecution may, you know, falter because of a, a lack of information, that's when we need public hearings. Now, the best example is, of course, perhaps, uh, you know, very topical, the um, Banking Royal Commission results out today after four. Now, for years and years and years, the government, current government said, you know, nothing to see here, everything's, everything's fine, everything's good. But if it was not for a Royal Commission with the scope and capacity to hold um, public hearings and to, to uh, gather information in that way, we just would never have heard or known um, the depth of uh, the integrity failings within the banking system. And it's interesting that you raise that because, uh, yeah, it's on my mind too. We're getting those, those that report being released today. And on one hand, it's been a tonic. You know, I, I saw that, that Commissioner Hayne wouldn't shake the Treasurer's hand when he was tabling, you know, giving the Treasurer that report the other day. He's like, no. Nah. Not, not doing a PR exercise here, which is really great. And on the other hand, it was disappointing through hearing the, the hearings how uh, our regulators didn't seem to be strong enough or didn't seem to be enforcing the powers that they have. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the Commission. But are these the kinds of um, perceptions from the public that does feed into this concern around Australia and how strong we are and how uh, able we are to withstand corruption setting in? Well, that's certainly one of the measures that we use for the Corruption Perception Index is, is really the government's ability to enforce integrity mechanisms. That's one of the, one of the absolute measures that's, that's uh, you know, in the core of the CPI. Um, and as we've seen uh, recently, there is real concern about the way that our regulators have um, conducted themselves of recent and that's why um, the importance of having a robust system of checks and balances is just so crucial uh, not just to ensure um, trust and confidence in government and, and we know in Australia trust and confidence is at a, in government is at an all-time low. And at every level pretty and much. And at every mm. level, yep. at, at, a, at a local level, at a state level, at a government level. 
Um, so restoring trust and, and confidence in government is is critical, and the role of the regulators is 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 a critical component of that. And that's why we need a comprehensive, well coordinated federal anti-corruption agency that, that brings together all of our existing um, kind of patchwork of, of integrity institutions that we have and have that coordinated in, in a much better way. It's interesting to me that, I mean, some people might point to the rise of independence in Parliament as a sign of the deterioration of our democracy, or at least in, in voter trust in the, the two major parties, for example. We know that membership has really dwindled in recent years. But in this case, we've seen an independent, Cathy McGowan, really pushing for greater transparency and greater accountability in government. So I wonder what your sense is of, of the role of independence in Parliament as we're seeing them kind of rise up, not just in Australia, but in other places around the world as well. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we're certainly seeing, um, and one of the issues that's, that's emerged from this corruption perception index is, as you say, we've got, uh, you know, the uh, stronger independence in, in Australia at the moment, and I think they've picked up on on the issues that are hot topics in the community, things like lobbying, um, the issue of political donations, um, the issue of what we call the revolving doors, the movement of staff between government and then into, you know, well-paid industry lobby groups and then back into government. So these are some of the issues that certainly the independents, um, I think, have picked up on, these current day issues. As far as the Corruption Perception Index goes globally, what we're also seeing is this rise of populist leaders uh, around the world. Um, quite interesting because, in fact, many of them have almost... They've come to power on an anti-corruption ticket, mm. if you like. Um, Brazil's a really great example where, you know, um, a, a new leader, certainly a populist leader, came into power on a strong anti-corruption ticket. But then what we see is these very people, these populist leaders then often or can start to, to um, dismantle the very institutions that are important to um, ensure there is that system of checks and balances in place. And that's what's happening in Brazil. And we're now seeing, of course, real fatigue uh, amongst the broader community who are just, you know, in, in the case of Brazil, you know, just feeling pretty demoralised as, as we are yeah, about the state of corruption around the world. And I suppose that takes takes me to uh, fake news and also Facebook. And I wonder with this, um, you know, we're hearing particularly um, President Donald Trump use that fake news term all the time, which doesn't seem like it would be helpful, um, particularly with the media being, uh, you know, holding those in power to account. Uh, but also, you know, what about social media? What about the kind of algorithms that deliver us many people news? How, how do these things play together, do you think? Well, I think it's it's um, you know absolutely uh, critical that we have a strong and vibrant uh, media. You know, this is these are the fundamentals of a functioning, um, vibrant democracy and society. And of course, the media has played a crucial role um, in exposing corruption around the world. Uh, it's often a very deadly uh, business for, for investigative journalists and the media to, uh, to report uh, on corruption. Um, certainly, interestingly, going back to the States, I mean, you mentioned before about the USA they scored 71 on this year's uh, Corruption Perception Index, but 
What's more interesting is that they actually dropped four points since um, last year to earn themselves the uh, their lowest score ever, uh, or the lowest score in the CPI for the last uh, for the last seven years. And in fact, for the first time, they've you know dropped out of the top 20 countries. And I think, you know, that comes at a time um, in the USA when there are, you know, they're experiencing real threats to their system of, of checks and balances. Uh, and also, I think, at a time when there is this erosion of ethical norms, um, I think you could argue, at the very highest of levels. And this concept of fake news uh, is is not helping that because it's not actually exposing the real issues around corruption and the threats to democracy around the world. Mm. And if we circle back to Australia, just finally, we've talked a bit about the proposed Commonwealth Integrity Commission or the form that that a future anti-corruption commission or body might take in Australia. But one area that a lot of people are concerned about and that's been kind of in in the news in recent years is around political donations. There was a data dump uh, just last week, I think, revealing donations as far back as July 2017. So it takes a long time for us to get information about political donations at the federal level. Does it feel like to you that we'll see movement on this soon, that there will be more robust laws and regulations put in place to to um, facilitate more transparency in just who's donating to the major parties. It, look, we we absolutely need this. Uh, it's long overdue. Um, we don't have real-time disclosure of, of political donations. There is, a, there is a lag sometimes of up to 18 months and we need to know uh, at the time, you know, who is making donations, how much are they making uh, and what might they be expecting in return for that. I mean, it's, it's clear that, you know, people don't make large donations of sometimes millions of dollars for political to political parties for no reason. There is also always an expectation that um, uh, it will come back to assist them at some time in the future. One of the limitations of the Cathy McGowan bills that were put up um, was that it, it didn't go far enough to um, uh, call for reform of our political donation system to ensure we have real time. This has got to happen, this reform has got to happen sooner rather than later. We just can't keep kicking this can down the road any longer. And in designing a new federal anti-corruption agency, we need to be building in the design and reform of our political donation system, along with stronger oversight for lobbying uh, lobbyists and also uh, put some real checks around this revolving door uh, situation that we have at the moment. Well, we have this year a chance to elect uh, politicians that might do that for us. And um, thanks so much for coming in and talking about this latest report today. It's been really great. Thanks for having me. And over in Venezuela, a volatile political situation is continuing to unfold as the country's president, Nicolas Maduro, clings to power despite growing opposition from within the country and pressure from the international community for him to step aside. A couple of weeks ago, the country's opposition leader Juan Guaido declared himself interim president and quickly received the backing of President Donald Trump and a range of other nations including Canada and incidentally Australia as well as many in Latin America. Meanwhile Russia, China and Turkey have reiterated their support for the left-wing Maduro regime. 
Venezuelans have taken to the streets in their thousands and while some see this as the start of the end of Maduro's reign, he still retains the support of the military and has shown no signs of relinquishing power. To help us understand all that's going on over there and put this in context for us, we're joined by Dr Raul Sanchez Uribari, a lecturer over at La Trobe University. Welcome to Triple R and thanks for stopping in to help us get a sense of what's happening over there. Thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. So many of our listeners might not be all that familiar with Venezuelan politics and the sequence of events that have led to where the country is is at today. I wonder if you can provide a bit of a, I guess, snapshot of the country's recent history and and what's led up to this um, volatility currently. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as you can imagine, the Venezuelan Venezuelan contemporary history has been, uh, let's say, quite active. Uh, Many developments in the past 20 years uh, following the election of... uh, left-wing president Hugo Chavez back in 1998, and uh, what was effectively a change of regime back then, we've had a situation where the country has had a polarized uh, political dynamic between uh, supporters of President Chavez and the opposition supporters. And that's been the characteristic feature of the country's politics for, for a long time. Now, Hugo Chavez fell sick and passed away five, six, six years ago, 2000, early 2013, and Nicolas Maduro was his heir. He was elected in, in April 2013 by a really slim margin. So imagine a polarized nation where Nicolas Maduro wins by 2% over the opposition leader. And ever since, the opposition have been making gains in political support and in, 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 eventually led to winning the National Assembly, which is a legislature in Venezuela in December 2015. And that, of course, created a very tense situation. These were, let's say, two branches of power that couldn't really accommodate themselves with to one another. Um, as the opposition, as the term, Maduro's term began passing, the opposition began mobilizing to try to seek to remove him from the presidency through constitutional means. Now, this includes a recall referendum in 2016, and then eventually in 2018, we're supposed to have a presidential election that that would be recognized as free and fair. Mm. Ever since, the Maduro regime has also blocked this constitutional path. And that, of course, has exacerbated the tensions. It eventually led the Maduro regime to approve a national constituent assembly in a, a sort of questionable way. Um, that led, of course, to uh, to not only exacerbate the tensions, but for a lot of Venezuelan people you know, of position leaning, not see a, an opportunity to be able to express themselves. And that, of course, happened even more so uh, in 2018, after, the, after a presidential election that was very questionable with uh, several political parties being um, uh, being uh, set aside or or not being able to run, mm-hmm. several candidates being either banned or jailed or in exile. Well, that was the election that Maduro claims is mm-hmm. actually giving legitimacy. So we come at a point when early 2019, Maduro was meant to um, uh, take oath for this second term based in this election. He does in front of the regime leaning Supreme Court, and along comes the legislature's president, new president and says, wait a second, or the opposition leaning legislature, right? wait a second, I don't recognize you as president because you haven't won free and fair elections. So let's look at what the Constitution says here. Article 333, when the constitutional order of the nation has been broken, the you know, citizens have to, mobil- have to do whatever it's needed in order to restore it. Article 233, very controversial. Um, I see here that in the case of a vacuum of power, by analogy, I can 
take over as interim president. And this is how we've got an interim president and a president exactly. in Venezuela. Exactly. And of course, there are more complications. I'm sorry that I gave such a long summary, but that's pretty much the core of it. Well, mm. it's important to know. So what, I mean, what has life been like in Venezuela with Maduro as president for the last six years? It sounds like it's been a very difficult time. It's probably the most important part. I mean, the, the, no politics can take place or make sense without a social and economic context. And here we're talking about a nation that has lost close to 50% of its GDP in three and a half, four years. Talk about an economic crisis. Hyperinflation, one million percent inflation, over three million refugees leaving the country in the past three years. And this is unprecedented in Venezuelan history, in Venezuelan contemporary history. The last time that, that the country suffered uh, a conflict of this nature, I would have to go back in history over a century. So for Venezuelans, this is absolutely new to explore. You know, other countries, for example, in Latin America have had a history of, of outward migration. Mm. Um, for Venezuela, that's a relatively new phenomenon. So, of course, this has shaken the country to the core, has you know, ripped the social fabric apart, torn families apart, and so forth. And on the economic side, there are a number of other problems, as, um, as it's been more even more difficult to access hard currency because of you know, how expensive it is for the vast majority of Venezuelans. We're talking about a, you know, the equivalent of my job here in Australia. In Venezuela, would make less than ten dollars a month, and this is this means essentially not being able to get by in with and not being able to buy essentials, medicines, and so forth. Now that explains the the migration. That explains mm. the desperation. Um, so yeah, so that's pretty much the landscape no, as, as, it, as it stands. And, and so, so given that context over the past number of years, how does that, uh, I guess, affect the relationship Venezuelans here in Melbourne, Venezuelans in, in Australia and other parts around the world um, have with people who, who are still there and, and who are really doing it tough? Look, that's a very interesting part of the dynamic that often, unfortunately, gets sidelined, especially right now. I mean, no, certainly everything that's happened uh, has a geopolitical dimension that people follow. And you know, people express their opinions as a function of what their preferences are and so forth. But thinking about Venezuelans for a second, the Venezuelan, the Venezuelan uh, Australian community is nowadays has between eight to 10,000 Venezuelans living in Australia, either as citizens or residents or studying here or joining their relatives, right? Um, just 20 years ago, there were only 100. So th this, is, this is as much as it's grown. Um, those Venezuelans mostly live in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, they are mostly... Um, professionals who moved to the country in the past 10 years, relatively younger families, with a lot of them with parents aging in Venezuela, many of whom, for example, their own siblings have left. So imagine, for example, having your, this is one dimension, right? Having your aging parents, this is something that all of us can relate to in those conditions, with having lost probably 90% of their assets in value. And of course, no money. So one dimension is support, and of course, financial support, but also emotional support, which is so important, as we know, for an aging parent. And in Latin American culture, broadly speaking, the actually the relationship with your parents when they are aging is very important. It's very significant because you don't see it as a state responsibility. Mm -hmm. You see it as a family responsibility. That adds another dimension, the visa situation. With the country becoming increasingly risky, of course, We've heard, anecdotally, um, particularly people who are connected to the Venezuelan Association of Australia have heard of multiple cases of the incidents of Venezuelans who have tried to bring their families, for example, visiting, but now that because the country is perceived as a riskier place, 
it is more difficult for them to get a visa approved. Uh, so that's another dimension as well. Those two, I could tell you a bit, a bit more about this particular connection, and I can imagine how hard it is for them mm. to, to navigate these issues. We're speaking with Dr. Raul Sanchez Uribari, a lecturer at La Trobe University, all about the current political situation playing out in Venezuela and also how that, that affects the, the human relationships, particularly for Venezuelans living in the Australian community. And I guess watching, I mean, every day there's more news coming out of Venezuela as, as thousands of people take to the streets to, to protest what's going on over there currently. Given there's been some support from the United States and other countries around the world, the US doesn't have kind of a great track record in intervening in Latin America historically. So how do people, and I'm sure there's a diversity of opinions, but how do Venezuelans respond to that kind of support internationally, given the dire situation there, but also being potentially a little bit uneasy about US intervention? Yeah, and absolutely. That's a key dimension of the of the problem as well. As you can imagine, thank you for mentioning from you know, right off the bat that there is a range of, of, of views, both within Chavismo and within the opposition. Because Chavismo and Chavis, uh, Chavismo support, or no, Maduro support, particularly Maduro support, let's call it that way, um, covers between... 15 to 20 percent of the population in, in this polarized context, and for them, of course, uh, the intervention, the, the sort of the role and, and what they perceive as a potential intervention that could become even more active, in, either in a military sense or political sense, by the United States, is a big red flag, mm. and 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 of course is directly connected, as we know, to a legacy of intervention that has existed in the region for years, and which is well documented, and and also uh, the the U.S.'s own. Uh, role in Venezuela in the past 20 years, which has been sometimes more visible than other times in all fairness, right? Um, now, on the other hand, for opposition-leaning Venezuelans, you find also, you find a range of views. You find people who are um, maybe either they were so strongly opposed to, Ch uh, to Chavismo from the very beginning or, or feel uh, so aggrieved by the situation as we speak, that any, any development that can lead to change, they welcome Okay, that's. But for the vast majority of Venezuelans, um, it's a moment of, uh, I think, in that sense, recollection come. Because after all, we do want the country to move forward in a constitutional manner, to have new elections and so forth. On the other hand, the fact that the problem now is geopolitical means that it's no longer a Venezuelan problem, but it becomes a regional world problem. Good in the sense that it might lead to a change, but on the other hand, this is a Venezuelan problem. So though the views of the Venezuelans, I feel, must be always placed at the core of the issue. And bear in mind that we can talk about the role of Russia, China, the US, Cuba, etc., but and which is enmeshed with what's happening in Venezuela. But in the end, the claim that we see, for example, for um, new elections and for Maduro to step down or to accept elections is a Venezuelan claim. In the end, and that's how the, the the I think the the main way that it should be approached. Mm. Yeah, and you spelt that out earlier. But I, I wonder what is the kind of role of the military in Venezuela? Is this is this an area that we should be watching? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, the sort of a simplistic way of looking at it right now is is a people demanding demanding change and the military blocking it. But that's it's a bit more complicated than that. The, the Venezuelan military um, is is pro-regime so far. It's been the, the, the sort of the course of the current affairs mean that we're expecting, for, uh, for example, some of the, what we already know, some divisions within the military to emerge. 
Uh, but the loyalty of the military has been strong for several reasons. I mean, you have the ideological dimension, of course, which is 20 years of a military receiving ideological, not heavily ideological training, feels strongly aligned with the regime. Others, of course, and, we have, and I hate to say it, is the corruption dimension of it. And unfortunately, that's the main elephant walking in the room here. Um, we, we have a military with close to 2,000 generals, from what a, f- a friend was telling me the other day. And all of them, it, it means a whole room of people with you know, gold badges who also have a stake in keeping the regime the way it is. Um, so that means also a fracture within in terms of the experience of what it means to be a military person. If you are right in the upper echelons, you want the regime to stay. But if you are on the ground and you are the one who's, who's actually in charge of, of repressing the population, for example, when there is, uh, when, 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 you know, when, when there is a protest or a demonstration in the street, that's a different story. That, there, I think, there is a whole range of, of views. And I imagine that for many of them, it's a really hard situation because they also have to survive somehow. Mm. <laughs> they are also... They need to situation. live somewhere. They have to, and they have, they, they're also living off $10 a, a month. Mm. They also experience the same grievances. They have relatives who tell them, oh, what, why do I have to put up with this? And so forth. So that's definitely a key part of, of the story. And so what do we know about Juan Guaido, the 35-year-old opposition leader who's declared himself the, the interim president of, of Venezuela? Is he someone who, who enjoys kind of popular support and, and has been, been a key figure in the years leading up to this? Or? Look, when, when we... It, it's interesting that after a few days we can talk about all these issues a bit more calmly because, you know, everything has been happening in such a uh, f- such fast pace. Guaido comes from a political, from a well-established political party, whose main leader is in, is in um, house prison, mm-hmm. and who is what he wasn't. He was a well-known leader within his party, not so well-known for the broader popula- population of Venezuelans. In a country that has been going through a period of charismatic politics, that in on itself is a bit odd on one hand, but on the other hand, it's a welcome development to some degree. Younger face, 35 years old. He's a he's a man who's um, has a sort of a, from what could be seen a good profile in terms of of having been a politician who actually talked the talk and walked the walk for a long time. So this is not a newcomer. This is a person who's had behind his back a long trajectory, which was easily easy to present. This mm-hmm. th- this is who he is, um, and and why do I think so far has been very disciplined in his message. Um, if you, you know, setting aside the, the very divided views that we find about Venezuela, when you read his, his core message, it's institutional. It's, it's, hey, let's stick to the Constitution. Let's get back to, con- to convoking elections. Let's, get, let's try to get humanitarian aid moving. And of course, for many Venezuelans who sit in the middle of those preferences that we were talking about, this is a very strong message. And I feel that that's going to be, it's probably one of the reasons why we're seeing more popular support for change mm. in the in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods that probably we didn't lower socioeconomic neighborhoods that probably we didn't see before. Um, that might be the strategy as well. 
So I think that's the best way of approaching his leadership. Mm, so, so are we not really seeing uh, a, a lot of talk or debate along kind of, I guess, let's say, traditional ideological lines of, of leftist, socialist versus kind of, you know, neoliberal, notionally right wing? Is that playing into this very much at all? Or is the situation such that Venezuelans, um, you, know, you know, many can see what's happened in the country over the past number of years and are very receptive to, to change, whatever that might look like? Well, I think that's a, that, I think that's a very fair point. I mean, I th- um, in the end, as we know, this is a, a conflict that has a very strong dimension in terms of ideology. Um, I think is unfortunately being that dimension has been manipulated in the in the you know in the international scene mm. from both sides, uh, right? I mean, from one side, uh, some people, for example, on the on the right, saying this is proof that socialism doesn't work. Well, uh, there are a number of reasons why the project didn't work, and that. Some, to some degree, might have not had to do with, for example, democratic socialism. Might have had to do with the way that they they, they transition and put the country. It's a in the pinup for of, why cor- yeah. corruption's not good. Exactly, <laughs> and then, but you would see on the other side of the left. Well, you know, socialism has absolutely nothing to do with this, and this is all a ploy of the of U.S. imperialism. Wait a second here, mm-hmm. because in the end, it was supposed to be a transition to a socialism. So there was a reason there to be invoked. You have to acknowledge that the transition didn't do, didn't go well. Why? And that debate that somehow it would feel would bring people, and especially analysts and scholars from different points of view, it's really hard to do in a polarized setting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know if this has been particularly helpful to understand the... Now, talking about today, um, look, if you ask a vast majority of Venezuelans, my bet would be that at this stage, mass, vast majority of Venezuelans want to talk more about what can work to make life better mm-hmm. <laughs> in a very more, in a very practical way way um, and and perhaps set uh, the ideological bent on the uh, for a side it will be very interesting to see I mean in fact when you look at why those message um, that's exactly what he's doing he's not mentioning too much uh, core elements of his views that would be perhaps more you know locate better located in a sort of center left or center right or right or you name it uh, but rather hey we are in an emergency here that we've never faced before this is how we must go so I think that's going to be interesting as well to see to what degree the different solutions and time ahead from both sides start opening themselves yeah, up. Yeah, and thank you so much for providing a more nuanced view. Uh, thank you. Yeah, really appreciated, and thanks for coming into Triple R today. Thank you for, for, for providing such a space. I appreciate it too. Yeah, and I've learned a lot, and I'm going to be thinking about those uh, older Venezuelans now for the rest of the day. I think it's um, a tricky a tricky business. And, and um, Dr. Raul Sanchez Uribari is lecturer in crime and justice and legal studies at La Trobe University. And uh, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Alicia. And this Thursday is 10 years since Australia's worst disaster, the Black Saturday fires and communities all around Melbourne are marking this anniversary in different ways. Uh, Daryl Taylor is a resident of Kinglake. He's rebuilt since the fires and this week and over a series of Saturdays he's opening his new home as part of the Sustainable Living Festival. Daryl's house is what's called an earthship and I think must be one of the most remarkable sustainable buildings we have in Australia and he's here, he's made the trip in to tell us more about it and it's great to have you in here Daryl. Thanks school yeah. And um, we've known each other, um, you you know my parents and look like so many people it's been a massive 10 years for you to say the least but you have this building now I wonder where to start like I mean why is it that you've chosen to rebuild an earthship? Um, I think the fire was one of those things that tosses everything up in the air and we were about to extend the house that we had so we'd bought 
pretty much $100,000 worth of building materials and they were stored in a shed and so they all burnt. So it was an opportunity to rethink and um, probably five years earlier I'd come in contact with um, the Earthship model in at FOE. So uh, Friends of the Earth had Mike Reynolds' books um, on the Earthship and, yeah, it had always been of interest to me and I found out that he was coming out a few months after the bushfire, he did a speech for the RMIT um, State of Design conference, uh, which I went to and had a good chat with him. And then through that, got to go over to the US. I was invited to be a guest speaker at an international community development conference on disasters and economic crises um, in New Orleans. And so while I was over there, I also went and visited Mike up in um, New Mexico and went to the Earthship Village that they have there. And yeah, it was quite inspiring. And So it was pretty soon after Black Saturday that you started to think about rebuilding. Yeah, I, I did. I, I think it was such a searing experience um, and being you know, the next morning, just I got up early and went for a drive. One of our cars was still drivable, probably not roadworthy. Um, but it was just an extraordinary experience to see the dev- devastation and then to see the way that people rallied together. And so, you know, one can't help but be incredibly touched by those experiences. It was just people turning to one another and you know, basically meeting every fundamental human and social need in the absence of anyone else around. And the area was locked down for the oh, best part of eight weeks afterwards because of forensics coming through and uh, going from property to property looking for uh, remains. And so people just had to really bootstrap themselves up. And that was probably my most incredible experience of community development I've ever experienced and so yeah the commitment came out of there and the commitment also was related to an interest in climate disruption and um, you know that we're likely to have more intense fires Um, so King Lake was a really good opportunity to test what could be done Um, and so I looked around um, I'd been doing bit of work um, in permaculture and was friends with David Holmgren and I introduced David to Mike and so these two eco mavericks that was a really interesting process and so yeah out of that you know in my mind it was just bioculture sort of biotecture and permaculture smashed together and looking at adapting it to our particular area we've got a 70 degree cliff face that comes up the ridge to um, the top of the mountain and it's all pyrophilic forest below almost like bonsai forest it grows out of rock it's very nutrient poor so it's very fire vulnerable and um so you know we know with fire roaring up that hill accelerating up there that we're very vulnerable at the top of the hill so it just presented a really interesting design challenge and for those who may not be uh, all that aware of of what earthships are and and that particular model of of housing um um, what is it and and how did you all go, go about building one in king lake yeah i suppose you know the images that you see of earthships are really about people smashing dirt into tires um, i watched a video this morning of <laughs> someone <laughs> diy and, how you doing you know mike reynolds is pretty adamant that it's about the principles and mm. so you apply the principles differently at different latitudes just like david's written a permaculture book about our latitude which will be reproduced in other latitudes with very different solutions and resolutions of different problems it's similar with biotecture so 
you know, the basic principles are thermo, solar, heating and cooling. So, um, you know, we've got no heating and cooling. It snows in King Lake. So we're looking at establishing an internal temperature between 18 and 20 degrees. So whether it's 48 degrees or minus 5 degrees, it'll be still the same temperature internally and we manage that by placing the house underground on the south and the southwest and the southeast and we've got a greenhouse to the north and basically we run tubes underground so it's got a kind of got like the Cooper Beatty effect um, of an underground house and we take basically the hot air out we evacuate that that creates a chimney effect at the top of the greenhouse that draws the cool air in uh, through pipes from underground so that's basically the regulation when it's hot and then you you've basically got a huge bank of heat um, in your your thermal walls and so if you opened it up in winter um, when it was snowing it would drop to zero and if you closed it up again you know within a relatively short period of time it'll be back about 18 degrees because that wall will act as like a battery for mm. heat it'll just leach heat out so off-grid power solar wind and maybe some geothermal um, self-contained sewage systems so we're looking at three options for our sewage systems so that we can lever it depending on how many people are at the place so you know we'll probably use a worm farm system we'll probably use a reed bed system and we'll probably use a septic system with a, a transpiration field as well um, we build with natural and recycled materials so I've used the maxim of waste streams equals supply chains to sort of inform the build and with Melbourne going through such a rapid period of development there's no end of materials that are uh, available mm. if you can be sneaky and ask questions just rel relentlessly ask questions has kind of been my strategy and yeah you find that there's stuff available um, all water harvesting is on site so we've got a big roof area and we're capturing water we're going to have over 100,000 litres of water on site which we'll need in an extended El Nino environment so if you get a 12 15 year drought you've got to have enough water to see yourself through so really it's about autonomous housing um, we do internal food production in the greenhouse so growing food from the Congo Southeast Asia and Central and South America in a glassed in area wow. and for me there's a seventh principle which is which is really just about thinking in terms of integrated win-win-win regenerative systems and regenerative design so you know how do you leverage as many permutations and combinations of solutions mm. and there's so much in that building i mean everything that you've just outlined and i suppose um those that know the sort of history of of earthships is that they were developed in that sort of desert or arid part of of the united states but you've put one in in king lake is it also likely to perform well in fire as well yeah Darryl? that was really primary because it's north facing our worst fires will come from the south from that really steep forested area and that's where it's in the earth and king lake so yeah it's underground and basically that means instead of fire hitting a 90 degree wall repeatedly it's going to flow over the top so yeah, it's just using fluid dynamics essentially mm. and what you were saying about the experimentation that happened um, in Taos in New Mexico um, that's what I love about it. So this is really not command and control strategic planning 
building. So we've had probably 37 innovations that have emerged through different vernacular tra traditions as we've brought people from all around the world to work on the site. And I've encouraged creativity at every stage. So it's been more emergence oriented and self-organizing systems. And so, you know, we've kind of had people who've dueled the social process. So the social process really works well. And it's been really growth oriented. So we've taken a deliberately developmental approach to the community that's working on the property so it's kind of been a real socio-ecological self-organizing systems with emergence as the phenomenon we celebrate at the end of the day when we sit around the fire and look up at the stars and have a beer mm. we're speaking with daryl taylor the owner and builder of uh, the king lake earthship and you can go and visit that as part of the sustainable living festival over the next couple of weekends um, we're also uh, chatting about uh, 10 years since black saturday can you believe it this week and all the elements of the earthship that you described, Daryl, make it seem like a really logical and, and appealing way of living. But the, the method is very different to the traditional way that we've built houses in Australia. Was this an easy house to build in terms of the, the kind of permit process and getting the right kind of green light to, to do this? Does silence work on radio? <laughs> <laughs> it says a lot. <laughs> Look, it was very difficult. It took five and a half years to get the building permit. And, you know, really, in many ways, that's because local government's not empowered to make decisions. So state government have risk frameworks, and so that impacts big time on local government. Nilambic, where I used to work, where Coolia's mum used to work, Julie, um, you know, they've got a really good earth building, um, natural building department. like Chad. And a big history in that yeah, area of natural Chaz building. Yeah, and was, like, fantastic as a building surveyor, and I sat down and chatted with them, and they talked about the the top-down pressures not to do this kind of work mm. and how difficult it was going to be to get approval. Um, and that was very much the case. I think, um, you know, the big corporates, the big unions, they both benefit from dividing it up into little parcels for different professions or different trades. And so this is about integration. So this will probably operate more like a 24, 25 star house. Uh, and, you know, we need legislation that's 24, 25 star house legislation. The seven star stuff is really just tweaking the existing model that allows people to profit, big companies to profit by just rolling off the same stuff off the shop floor, basically, mm. off the plan. So it doesn't respond to environment. Uh, you know, really good design responds to your environment and the challenges and opportunities that that brings. So, you know, that's what we've been able to do. But yeah, I... We were lucky enough after we were able to extract ourselves from the standard kind of process um, with uh, the responsible authority with the local government when we went within the first instance, um, you know, I had to go through state government and get letters written and a whole bunch of stuff just to find another way through. Um, and then, yeah, I suppose the legacy of the Kent years was they um, allowed people to be private practitioners. And I found a private practitioner at the St Andrews Market. He, a guy who'd approved some yurts, some Mongolian yurts at Flowerdale. Shows uh, the system works, Dale. Yeah, the market system works. Uh, <laughs> the St Andrews Market. So, yeah, Jeff from North it's just been an amazing building surveyor. So getting him on board has been hugely helpful. I imagine for other people uh, what you've achieved, and look, it's been done in the wake of a very traumatic event as well, but 
sets some sort of precedent, doesn't it? Like, would this make it more likely that we're going to get similar or, or similarly different buildings uh, in these kinds of areas, yeah, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's up to other people, but certainly that's the goal. Um, Marty Farini has done a really good job in the Adelaide Hills with Ironbark, and so this is the second major one in Australia and the first in Victoria, and it's a direct response. So it's been designed as... Uh, climate and disaster resilient building. So it's a direct response to what I call the pyrocene after Stephen Pine's amazing work. Um, a pyromantic guy from the United States, an incredible theorist in this area. And so if we're moving into a pyrocene, you know, we've got fires in Tassie, fires up at Hepburn, uh, fires in the Arctic Circle in Sweden, all of these kind of different phenomenon if um, the species that is the keystone species for fire that's us that's humans you know we basically live to combust uh, we are the great combusting you know the combustion comes from us so uh, you know we're producing a pyrocene now so how do we respond to that so the design is a definite response to that and the, the idea of going through all of the approvals is so that there is a legacy if other, want, other people want to follow the lead. And I think what we've done well at King Lake is we've done a standard modelership tweaked for climate and fire resilience, but we've also retrofitted the pre-existing mud brick house, which was badly damaged in the fire. So any house that runs east-west and faces north, you can retrofit as an earthship as a fire resilient property um, so I hope that will be at least as m much value as the new one because we've got such a, a large housing stock already and so you know you can retrofit rural you can retrofit township you can retrofit suburban houses as an earthship if you so desire and then what I'd like to see happen down the track is you know particularly in King Lake we've identified a couple of properties um, 100 acres each where you know it would be great to be able to develop whole villages where the design of the whole villages again uses those kind of fluid dynamics to allow the fire to flow over the top of the whole village so you know how you can develop a settlement a regenerative and resilient settlement fire and climate regenerative and resilient so and also building the social skills like I'm concerned you know when I hear that the whole of Hepburn was evacuated because the people that do stay it makes their job more difficult because if your neighbour's not actively putting out the fire there then you're more vulnerable so uh, you know, the runaway strategy, I think, is not going to be something we're going to be able to sustain through 60 days of, you know, high fire danger in the worst years that we can imagine that might be coming. So, again, you know, this design is about rethinking stay and defend as well. Mm. And so this week is, this Thursday, is the 10 years since Black Saturday. And is there, will you be marking that that event on on Thursday or is the opening of the house on the Saturday part of, part of um, I suppose, what you seem to be putting putting back to your community in this way? Oh, look, the communities that were impacted by the fire and with the fires were extraordinary. They went across um, 26 local government areas and a whole raft of communities and each community will be marking the 10-year anniversary in their own way, as will we up in King Lake certainly in St Andrews and Strathewan and areas where we were most in contact with people, Flowerdale and Marysville because of that Murrindindi connection. So we've got a new memorial up on top of Frank Thompson's Reserve, uh, Lady, Stone, Lady Stonehaven's Lookout. It's one of our favourite places. You can see 
the you know the CBD and beyond um, St Kilda Road you can see the heads and on a clear day you can see out to Bass Strait from there so it's kind of like a real spiritual sp- space up home so from 5.30 on Thursday people will gather there and look I'm looking forward to it I'm anticipating a lot of people will come back who I haven't seen for a long time so yeah I think it'll be an emotional time for all of us on Thursday and probably Friday um, we'll probably as has happened people tend to uh, not do so much the big events but have mutual self-help kind of peer support groups there, mm. close friends where they'll sit and reflect and remember and um, yeah I'm looking forward to it but you know I watched the ABC show last night and um, you know it was very teary throughout so it was lovely to see a couple of friends featured um, and, you know, their challenges and, you know, how they've grown and what they're still struggling with. And it was a beautifully produced program. I'd recommend it to people on iView. But, um, you know, I think it's going to be like that. There's joy and irony and sadness and just still grief and trauma. And, yeah, people will go on experiencing that probably most of their lives. Mm. And it's a, it's a great gift to the community, the Earthship, in, in a sign of the, the resilience of a community that's kind of, um, you know, kept going in the wake of Black Saturday 10 years ago. And as we did mention at the start, there are a couple of um, events coming up over the next two Saturdays. You have one on this Saturday just gone as well. Tell us about those and, and what people can expect if they want to head along. Yeah, I mean, just to be really clear, the, the building's not finished yet. It's very much a work in progress. Um, I think I can say with some confidence that it'll be finished and fully inhabited this year. It's the first time I've been able to say that this year. Um, uh, So there'll be a tour of the property. So uh, I kind of introduced the biotechture and the permaculture principles. Um, We get together. I I show a video from Stephen Pine. It's the shortest video that we've got, but it really captures the essence of the pyro scene. So I want to give people the opportunity to think through the why I've designed it like I've done and also and why the others who've contributed to the design as we've kind of emerged the design why that that what's informed that process and really what informs that for me is when are we so it's it's being really clear that we're not in the aftermath of the second world war you know it's not the 1950s it's it's a time of accelerating acceleration of climate change and so you know, we really need to engage deeply with that in terms of how we build and also how we organise ourselves and how we reorganise ourselves and restructure what what it means to be human in this time. So humans are adaptable and that's where resilience comes from and, you know, we adapt to things like two great wars and a depression at the beginning of, you know, my parents' lives. And so, you know, we've got to adapt to what's what's confronting us now. So... There's an introduction around that led by Stephen Pine and then a conversation and and I give a bit of background backstory about my own um, experiences of trauma and resilience and how I apply that to regenerative design. Um, then we do a tour. Um, so the tour taught, sort of is more 
it's about the particulars of the property, but it's also about the context. So the context of living on the Great Dividing Range, so where my property is, if we grade the road a little differently on any given week, uh, the water could end up in the Melbourne catchment, you know, down... <coughs> down through the Diamond Creek into the Yarra and out into the bay, or it could join the King Parrot Creek and then the Goulburn River and then the Murray River and end up in South Australia. So, you know, just that kind of, that's where I live is right on that ridge. Um, you know, we're also this place where we get really big southerly winds from Antarctica, which are cold, and they meet the hot winds that come off the desert from the, the centre and you know so it's a cloud forming space because of the way the ridge works and also because of the eucalyptus regnans the tallest flowering plant in the world along with the sequoia in california probably the tallest trees that have ever been uh, you know recorded up to 150 meters tall so this area is amazing for the hydrology uh, and you know i suppose i'm really interested in this context because the ecologists that have been working in this area a and u have had continuous study of the forests where i live uh, the King Lake National Park um, and the adjoining state forests and you know they're saying this the system is in profound degeneration and so that has huge implications for Melbourne in terms of water supply because we've got Yan Yan Reservoir and all the other reservoirs in the area you know the Yarra Ranges etc so I try to give that context as well as then look at the particular responses and why it's a good idea to develop greater degrees of autonomy, even just a simple thing like the role of electrical infrastructure maintenance failure in bushfires recently in California, and certainly that was the trigger uh, at Sunday Creek for Black Saturday 10 years ago as mm. well. So just to try to, you know, the idea is to sort of support systems thinking and deep systems thinking, not just spatial, also temporal, um, and also relational systems thinking, so how we work together, so you know i try to reinforce that what happened in the aftermath of black saturday was really captured beautifully in a book by rebecca Solnit. she wrote about a hundred years of disasters in the united states so she wrote about um communities that are formed you know in hell was the sort of subtitle for her story and just that the love that you know for one another and the support and the mutuality and solidarity and you know the relationships that you'll you know you're going to have for the rest of your life and, mm. and um thank you for sharing your your house with us and also it's your home so yeah, um yeah. all the best we're, and we're living in it yeah <laughs> and we're we're with you and we're thinking of you this week and everybody in the affected communities right across victoria so many of us were impacted um some more than others and um we're all thinking of you this thursday and if you are interested in visiting kinship as it's called it's uh, daryl taylor's king lake earthship um, you can find out more information on the Sustainable Living Festival website and there's a few opportunities there to um, visit that property and by the sounds of it you're going to be sharing it with us into the future as well and thanks so much for making the trip in to talk thanks, with us Julia. on Thanks Julia and we do have a gig at 6 o'clock on Friday in at the Birrarungmar at the Sustainable Living Festival so some of the guys who've been working on the property are going to come and just share their experiences. So lots of opportunities today. and um, that one that one you can just go to the city you don't don't need to head yeah, out to yeah, king lake look at okay, you thinking of everyone <laughs> yeah, just knock off work and come on over to the river thanks very much right, see ya this has been a podcast from 3 rr 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au